1: Uh, hey, uh, before we get going, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using their simple platform takes less than two minutes to find out if you are overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. Just visit Credible.com slash long form. You answer a few questions and right away you will get real rates, not a range of rates, from multiple lenders doesn't affect your credit score. You got nothing to lose here. The average person who does it saves almost 19,000 over the life of their loan. Um, And as a listener to this show, you get a $200 welcome bonus when you refinance through Credible.com slash long form. Again, Credible.com slash long form. Thanks. Credible.com. All right, here's the show. Hey, welcome to the long form podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky, the old crew, the <laughs> classic lineup, the gang. <laughs> Aaron, who'd you uh, who'd you talk to on this old podcast? Uh, I actually talked. I was out in San Francisco. I was in Berkeley, uh, but I taped this interview in San Francisco. And uh, San Francisco is a bit of a theme of this interview. It's with Natasha Tiku, who is a uh, long time now. Technology reporter. She's with Wired right now. We actually taped this at the Wired offices. Mm. Thanks to Wired. Um, Evan Ratliff's old stomping grounds. That's right. Yeah. It was a different place back then. <laughs> um, and uh, it was a really fascinating interview. I feel like there has been a sea change in how the technology industry is viewed in America, uh, and it is now viewed more skeptically. And um, Natasha was out there way in front of that skepticism um and it was interesting to talk to her about how it uh how it feels to change from being in a um uh the minority view to the majority view um on the topic that you're reporting on and how that changes the stakes of what she's doing um really great really great interview i've been Very waiting. timely i've been waiting for natasha to just write like a I told you so essay I was I was I what I wanted to ask is like are you just going to go full contrarian now and be like hey you guys need to take it easy on the tech industry <laughs> there's some really sensitive people out there um, this show is brought to you as always by MailChimp they make it easy to send an email newsletter so you can base your company somewhere other than San Francisco I have uh, one other piece of news sure uh, the man to your left Evan Ratliff. Turned in a book last week. I saw week. that. I saw that you tweeted out a manuscript. I uh, that uh, not not on Twitter. Oh, not on Twitter. Oh, was on no, uh, Instagram. Instagram. Oh, is that private? Should That's I not private. reveal that? That's a private that? channel. a private channel. Well, very publicly, I would like to say Evan Ratliff has finished a book, Feet of Strength. Look for it at some point. I don't know when books ever come out, but five years from now. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that um, as a uh, a person who was like a fake turner-inner of late papers in college. The first time I saw when you when you put up that picture, the manuscript, I was like, oh, that's a classic fake-out. That's just a cover page. There's not really a manuscript under there. This is probably just for his publisher. True story. Yeah. Evan turned his book in On the exact date that his book was due, first time in recorded history anyone has done that. We need to do like, when your book comes out, we need to do a whole special episode about it, but part of it should be about how you possibly hit a deadline with a book, because I don't think anyone ever does it. I don't think they're ready for it. (laughs) Anyway, here's Aaron with Natasha Tiku. Welcome, Natasha Tiku.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, we are here in the uh, Wired offices in the belly of the beast. I think this is the first time I've talked to a technology reporter while actually within the environs of San Francisco.
2: Ah, uh, yes. Well, it's a Condé Nast outpost, outpost here, so okay. it's, it's kind of more um, 2008 vibes.
1: Got it, got it. So, when did actually, when did you move out here? I don't know that.
2: In, like, about three or four years ago?
1: Because I remember... You wrote a story. I think it was "My Life with the Thrill Clit Cult."
2: Yes, <laughs> uh, which
1: is about a uh, masturbation instruction forum, possibly cult uh, in San Francisco, and I think you were doing that as on a sort of touristic basis.
2: Yes, I was. It was uh, dropping me in, and I only stayed here for a couple of days. But that actually was my first. Um, it kind of gave me a taste of how much I was missing reporting on tech from New York. So mm. I asked Cocker to send me out here. For a month and then i eventually moved here
1: that's interesting like what did you feel like you were missing out on when you were doing it from new york
2: so much i mean the texture of life in the bay area i just felt like one of the criticisms of valley wag is that we didn't know the people we were talking about you know we're criticizing from afar and i thought that was a totally fair criticism and i guess it just it's a great reporting city for me and I can't judge the experience beyond that, because that's why I'm here. And it does kind of feel like living in a cultural moment. And I remember being um, kind of jealous and curious about people who lived in San Francisco during the dot com bust. Not that I'm hoping for a bust, except in real estate prices.
1: How did you get involved in tech reporting in the first place? Like what led someone at Valleywag to hire you there? And and what were your early days as a reporter like?
2: Well, I think we were both in the same early days at Inc. Magazine. Yes. I,
1: um, full disclosure, I was briefly a freelance fact checker <laughs> at Inc. Magazine. You were a staff reporter at that point? Yeah, but yeah.
2: reporter is like half reporting, half fact checking.
1: Half fa- okay. Glorified I was, fact checking. I'll just go out here and say I was a terrible fact checker. <laughs> it was not a career for me. How were you as a fact checker?
2: I think I was pretty... Good, probably kind of annoying. I mean, I feel like fact checking often comes up in the like breezy conversational anecdotes yep. and the things that make you transition smoothly from your lead to your nut graph. And actually, you know, it's gotten five details kind of slightly wrong and you're trying to think about how to do it better. And at Inc, I was fact checking pieces about like Elon Musk and Paul Graham. So that was also, like, that was the only time I talked to Elon Musk
1: Yeah, <laughs> to check his books. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of interesting as like a springboard for getting involved in technology reporting, because there was a period of time where I felt like business and tech reporting, because I think tech reporting kind of like is a descendant of business reporting, would either become very puffy, like press releasey like how I did it, I'm an entrepreneur pieces, or... Very confrontational takedown pieces. And like there wasn't much room for much else. And not to insult Ink Magazine, but Ink <sighs> Magazine falls more on the yes. former <laughs> side. And I would say um, your early tech reporting fell more on the latter side. Was that something while you were working at Ink, you were like, someday I'll show these people what I really think?
2: I mean, I I read an old like blog post of mine from Inc. and I was like, oh okay, I always was kind of salty about this stuff. <laughs> but I feel like there was just no freedom to even have any voice at Inc. Like I mistook that for me, you know, not being maybe a great business reporter, but you just had to fit the mold. You know, it was like a specific kind of business, and so watching all of the puffy coverage from afar, or just a particular style of coverage that didn't go into the details that I wanted to go into, which is, like, the characters and the people and, you know, maybe a little context. I'm not a gadget person. I don't get stoked about specs or, or, um, you know, feature updates and stuff, but I still want to know what's going on.
1: What did you feel like you could glean from understanding the personalities behind this technology stuff?
2: I don't know that I was thinking about understanding their personalities as a means to an end. It's just more like s- you're so curious. I mean, here's somebody with so much influence yeah. on the world. I mean, that's you know partly why the social network had lines around the block. And um, my first job out of Inc was at Daily Intel, which is the New York Magazine's blog. And uh, Jessica Pressler was working there. And she was covering Wall Street. And she was just like, you just have to make them into characters. You know, think about it that way. Um, You want to like communicate these stories to people from the outside, you know, to the widest group possible. And I mean, I'm just endlessly curious about people. And you see people that on television are withholding so much and speaking only in these in these canned terms. So you want to try to figure out how their mind
1: works. Tech figures particularly are some of the least coached famous people, or they probably are more coached now. Sadly, they're
2: more coached. (laughs) Yeah, now they're
1: more coached, but there was once a point where it felt like it was more real than other things, or more unfiltered, Mm -hmm. more unvarnished, and I guess that was something of an illusion of social media in general, that we had like a direct pipeline, you know, at Jack, that's just Jack, he runs Twitter, he's just talking right to you. When you came onto the scene, and you started writing for Valley Wag, and you started writing these pieces that were Definitely not the pieces that the technology industry wanted to have written about them. Like, what were your first few experiences like writing something uh, unflattering like?
2: Value more than any of the places that I've worked, got an instantaneous response. Like I would post something and people would DM me and tell me I was wrong. Tell me I didn't get this or I didn't get that. Or they were so excited that I took so and so down. So I think it was just my first experiences were so much scrutiny On, you know, you're presenting a lot of it was aggregation. So, um, I mean, I did some really great, I mean, fun for me reported pieces, but so they're basically, basically criticizing your take on it, you know, your opinion. And so, um, which is you. Yeah, me. Um, (laughs) And it just, I think, instilled in me a like, it's like a reaction to too many hot takes. It makes you really want to get things right and make sure it's uh, reflects, I guess, all the possible readings.
1: I think like I knew who you were, but the first piece that I was like, "Whoa! Like she did that? That's crazy!" was that Thrill Clit cult piece, which isn't even really about the technology industry. It's something of a picture of some of the weirdness that started happening in the Bay area uh, adjacent to the technology industry. I mean, it still feels very much of that era. In fact. If I were to try to describe that era, I'm not sure I would be like, like, look at this piece about the beginnings of Twitter as much as I would be like, look at some of those weird culty stuff that started happening when the money flowed in. Mm -hmm. Um, How did that story come to you? Like, how do these weird stories come to you?
2: Um, Well, I definitely try to, you know, put out vibrations into the universe to send... um Anything cult like my way. Yeah. Um, but that one was I was interviewing this female venture capitalist for, like, I'm sure a kind of super cursory, oh, you just moved to New York, you know, what's up, what are you investing in? And she mentioned that her friend was in this. And I was like, oh my God, okay, I have to find out more. And actually, it had been written about a number of times, and people went to like a half hour, or an hour length seminar. I think the San Francisco Chronicle had a good piece. But they were just at the cusp of trying to scale their company and present what they had as a tech product. You know, they were at, at South by Southwest that year.
1: So you start reporting this story and it's like, you kind of experientially going through it yourself, but you're also being kind of open about like a certain cynicism and a certain, like, like you aren't like, I thought I'd give it a try. I thought maybe I'd really like it. Like, What's it like putting yourself into a story like that? And how do you navigate it when when you're part of the story?
2: I don't have a set method, but in that case, and I find this kind of easy to do, like I just I want to fall for it at first to feel like what it's really like. And, you know, kind of feel the ups and downs. And it it almost mimics the same thing as a business conference. It's just so much human interaction with people you don't know in this um, staged environment. And, you know, I guess there's not networking per se um, at uh, orgasmic meditation, but I just I fell for it. And I wanted to, you know, have a better insight into why people do it and whether i could i I mean part of the reason i'm interested in cults is i i think i might be you know if i weren't myself i might be susceptible to it
1: what what part of yourself do you feel like is susceptible to uh the occult
2: i just find um i just find i understand that there's a comfort in listening to people who have organized the world in a specific way that then it makes sense to you and i find that you know, a lot of times they prey upon the fact that you feel damaged or you have these regrets or whatever. I mean, they're trying to make you feel like a, good human in the universe. And so that's obviously very appealing. But I also like watching how people in like group think can convince themselves all of the same thing. And I just wonder what it's like, you know, when they're, do they make eye contact with the other person and know it's bullshit? Are they, you know, is no one making eye contact? Like how, what do you tell yourself in in your head when you're part of this?
1: Do you draw a connection between that kind of thinking and the technology industry as a whole?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I I like business cults as well. (laughs) Cults of personality. Um, Anything where there is a dear leader.
1: You were early on the wave of like there was a period of time when people would write about Silicon Valley and the people from within Silicon Valley would be like, how dare you write so disdainfully about us? We're going to save the world over here it was kind of shocking to me actually to see like that, that thrill click call story was like 2013. And now most people are saying, Hey, what the hell's going on over there in the technology industry? <laughs> yes. I'm disdainful of you. Like get your shit together. Um, how is having that prescient take changed for you? And like, how do you adapt as a reporter as like the whole tech reporting industry kind of takes on your tone? <laughs>
2: Um, It's pretty wild. I would not have thought we would end up here um, so quickly. I mean, it feels like these, you know, Facebook gives you that, like, this is what you were doing a year ago. So I'll get like my 2012 post about Twitter's board being all white men or my, you know, 2015 post about Mark Zuckerberg. And it's, you know, they're unintentionally really (laughs) radicalizing me. Um, (laughs) But I think that, first of all, they're still very sensitive to it, extremely sensitive to it. There was just a... Um, yes, there's like a Twitter fight every day. And I think we're poised for like the backlash to the backlash. Mm. Even the Wall Street Journal just had this great piece about Facebook showing what they knew when about the Russian ads. And there was a quote in there where the guy said, well, you know, we're willing to take responsibility and we know that the media hates us. And so like, oh, blah, blah, Trump. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they're, they're constantly saying that. And yeah. it's um It's trippy to see everyone, you know, have kind of a similar tone. But I think then the mandate is to come with new information and better information that will, you know, knock down that critique.
1: How do you get that information? Like, I remember you did a piece on WeWork um, that was, I think, sourced mostly from internal documents about WeWork. That was a BuzzFeed piece you Mm -hmm. did. And I thought it was a really interesting piece just because it was... Usually, like it's like a, a restructured press release, and this felt like that, but it wasn't a press release, it was like an internal document. Um, like where do you get new information about this industry?
2: Um, well, that one I had written a feature about co living, which apparently is like new again now, but I've yeah. written about it in they like, just
1: there was just a time story about uh, adult dorms,
2: yeah. So, I was maybe three years too early and you couldn't tell because there weren't that many examples that I could give, but I knew it was going to be a thing and somebody liked that. And so they sent me um, the WeWork documents. I mean, when you, it's the same kind of access game that all reporters have to play. So when you can't go in the front door, you know, you have to find another way in. So I try to encourage anyone to talk to me.
1: Do you have sources in Facebook and Twitter and these major companies around the Bay Area? (laughs) <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll just we'll just let that one uh, drop. So um, regard, without revealing what companies they work at, like, I mean, we could throw a rock out the window and hit a potential source for you here. What is your like method for cultivating people who can tell you about what's going on within these companies?
2: I think just an open line of communication. I mean, sometimes they're just venting. Yeah. um, And sometimes they just want someone else to see the same thing that they're seeing, you know, even if it's not for a piece. So um, I just try to have conversations with them, like two people who are observing a phenomenon rather than operating on two different levels.
1: San Francisco can just feel so immersive around these industries where, um, you know, as I said, you throw a rock, you go into a bar, like... When you go into a bar and you say, hey, I, yeah, I work at like Wired magazine. I'm a tech reporter. Like, who are you in, in this universe? Because it, it doesn't seem like there's a strong like line between personal and professional life here around this stuff. Certainly not within these companies.
2: Well, I've drawn a, a line for myself. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I would say that San, living in San Francisco is so Strange or yeah. living in the Bay Area right now. I'm in Oakland. Um, this is something that everyone from New York or out of town is like, "Oh my God, I can't believe it. Nobody told me." But the the stark income inequality and the lack of resources for people not in your backyard. I mean, people are lit. I literally step over homeless people every day to go to work, and it feels disgusting. You know, to have all of these resources and none of it go to these people who need so much and you know it just makes me really doubt i don't know how people can credulously believe that they want to fix the world if they're surrounded by these like really troubling problems i mean the guardian did a great piece where they had i think like a un official or somebody come around and they said this is like some of the worst situations that we've encountered this is not supposed to be happening in a first world country
1: You've you talked about moving to the barrier and that sort of the importance of immersing yourself in it like I'm wondering how that works out on a day-to-day level like what is the benefit of being in the place that you're writing on and um, is it like chance interactions is it people you meet at a party like what what matters so much about that
2: I think all of it, if you have the appetite to have a total overlap of personal and professional. Um, I am have been trying to carve out more time for myself. I just moved to Oakland. So I actually used to live in the Mission and that was just like by osmosis. Yeah, you know, I would learn, I would just learn everything. And so that felt like, um, you know, uh, just such a valuable experience. If you can kind of get the texture of the world you're writing about in the two blocks from BART to your apartment, why wouldn't you do that? Um, but I, right now, I, I do. When you when you're away from San Francisco, you realize, you see like what your friends see when they come here from New York, which is like, oh my God, it's so homogenous. Where are all the black people? Like this is this is not right. You know, where are all the people who are older than 35 and younger than 20? Um, so I've been trying to. Um, I guess there's there's other ways that you can do it. Just meeting more people in person, um, trying to understand where you live.
1: You've written for a lot of uh, publications, yeah. but two of the publications, I was just thinking um, BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed is both reporting on the technology industry and in some ways a product of mm-hmm. that industry. It is a startup that came You know, many of the same startups that you would write about probably have investors in common with BuzzFeed. Wired is inextricably tied to the uh, narrative of the first tech bubble in San Francisco. Are there conflicts that come up there? Like, is that something that comes up in the editorial meetings in companies like this?
2: It hasn't come up for me. Um, yeah. I think I've been grateful to have um, the kind of editors who would like to piss off their bosses. Yeah. And because they know that their bosses value um, that kind of reporting. Yeah. I'm also not at the level where it's a problem for me. So I'm kind of blissfully on the on the right side of the firewall. But I think that this conflict of interest is going to only become more and more apparent. Like your best case Savior for the newspaper industry is like Lorreen Powell Jobs. Yeah. Um, Jeff Bezos. You know, yeah. Just pick your billionaire. Yeah. And I don't know how it works in that case. I do know. I mean, I've been on the losing end of, <laughs> of having a billionaire go after you. Not me personally, but Gawker and Ballywag. But I haven't had to deal with that conflict myself. I've always been able to be as aggressive as I want
1: to be. Do you think about when you're reporting a piece from Wired, OK, this is going to be like on like a fold in the print magazine and then the next page will be a bunch of gadget reviews? Like, do you think about your reporting in that kind of a context at all?
2: No, I don't think about print. I don't think about print very much. Yeah, I was um, gonna say.
1: I think that's how it is. I actually haven't <laughs> looked at a print wire for quite a while. I've read a lot of articles online.
2: I do think because there's people with conflicting and or just uh, differing opinions here. Yeah. I do think about um, how my piece will look next to the headline that argues the opposite thing. But I think at this point, readers know that, and they're not like sitting on your homepage, anyways. They're probably coming from a social media share, so.
1: Does it matter where you're writing? Like has your life and editorial like outlook changed at these different publications or do you kind of see yourself as like a single vessel for your own reporting that's just looking for like someone to publish and <laughs> a pay you for it?
2: I find that there's a lot of similarity. I mean, once we got out of ink, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was able to like be a little bit more myself. Um, I do try to be really adaptable to I think that's important. I mean when I was at Inc., it was like going through the recession, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and they were transitioning very painfully into digital. And it really like instilled in me the importance of adaptability. Yeah. And so I've always also had staff jobs. I'm not a freelancer because I don't have the guts for it. Yeah. <laughs> it you, seems you like enjoy a really the stressful health insurance. <laughs> I do. Um, so I feel like the tone might carry over, but the mandates from your editors are often different, like in terms of what kinds of stories, what length, what the themes, the your particular beat wants to pursue for the year. But I do find myself kind of covering things based more on my interests.
1: What is your beat right now? What are you looking for right now?
2: Well, Well, right now, um, it's just hard to fixate on anyone besides the big five. Um, I mean, and that is manifesting itself in a myriad of different ways from antitrust regulation to politics to moderation, but it's just a different era. And I know startups feel incredibly frustrated. Like if somebody sends you, I mean, I felt this for a while. If somebody sends you a great idea and you're just like, well, either you're not going to get the traction or Facebook will buy you like there's just no it feels like there's no beating them. And I know that, you know, from reading my history that all companies fall, but it just feels like they've amassed this power and this dominance that is not unless there's some kind of intervention or I guess like Facebook obsolescence. I mean, their their engagement is going down and, you know, maybe that's actually the way they'll kind of crumble. But Everything is just looking at the top of the stock market and seeing. I mean, I cannot believe that these companies are worth this much money, and we're still having arguments about like, well, that's the price of free. I mean, a half-trillion-dollar company is not the price of free, you know. And they, they, you know, they're so massive, and they touch so many different areas of life, from healthcare to real estate to politics. So I've kind of got my hands full with these um, vampire squids of. Of tech.
1: When you look at something like Facebook that really has its tentacles everywhere, it's so big that you kind of can't even see all the places it is. Like, what's your approach to telling the story about those tentacles?
2: I mean, I think you might have to approach each one almost as a different company. I kind of wonder when beats are going to change maybe and have, you know, just doing Facebook's. Advertising that's certainly enough of a beat itself And I think it leads to kind of a dangerous Knowledge asymmetry because if you're going from you know, right now I'm working on this advertising story And it's just actually a completely different world and knowledge base than the last Facebook story Mm -hmm. I was writing. Different sources
1: probably too. Yeah,
2: and it's just a different depth of knowledge and um, You know, especially because the companies are not forthright with their information, and you kind of depend on access because there's no other way to hold them accountable. Oftentimes, when you don't know the right questions to ask, even it's dangerous.
1: When a company is not forthright about the information, what sort of a standard of fact, Like, how do you establish facts about a company that a company won't acknowledge about itself?
2: I mean, that that's sort of what I was saying earlier about, like, you have to just uh, f- fight that framing with more information. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, reporters have really stepped up to the challenge. I mean, there's, like, incredible reporting coming out. I think partly because people realized they couldn't get it from going through the front door.
1: It's interesting you said that these are getting big enough that they need, should be regarded almost as separate companies. Like, when Google spun off into Alphabet... I kind of started to see like a possible future where it's like, Oh, that wasn't us. That was the guys in like project (laughs) X, which is owned by the same parent company. And that's like a time honored American, like diffusion tactic is sort of uh, hiding behind different shells and companies. Like, where do you think we go from here with these? I mean, I know it's a large question, but um, you were kind of like prescient and realizing that eventually people would turn on these companies? Like, where do we go from here?
2: Well, um, I mean, with Google, like YouTube is still part of Google, and they won't break out revenue numbers for that. Here right. is the largest, I mean, as Zeynep wrote in the Times recently, largest radicalization engine on the internet. And we don't have to have any details about a publicly traded company. Like, it's crazy. So Facebook is the same thing. I mean, it owns three of the top messaging apps across the world. That's crazy. You know, so um, if you're covering Facebook's privacy policy, you know, like what about WhatsApp and what about Instagram? But yeah, I mean, I would not say that I I did not predict this in any (laughs) way, shape or form. Um, I think I tried to stress that there was a need to be skeptical and question some of the promises that they were making. But I don't think anyone thought that they would be able to wield this much influence around the globe so quickly.
1: What were you like growing up? Like, is this something you wanted to do with yourself from an earlier age? Or how did you get in? How did you become a fact checker at Ink magazine <laughs> in the first place?
2: I always liked writing. I loved writing, but I never thought of doing nonfiction. I love fiction and I wrote like poetry in college and I fell into it because my parents are Indian and they really, really wanted me to go to grad school. And I did not want to become a lawyer. And then when I went to J school at NYU, I just found it so exhilarating. I mean, I've always been an incredibly nosy person. I'm not curious, (laughs) Um, curious about the world. And it just gives you a license to ask any question and you know, hopefully if you have a a willing editor, the freedom to see something fascinating and pursue it. So it was just a natural fit from there. But that also sort of means I don't have like the machismo news, breaking news sort of a thing. But I I feel like I can try on different hats, you know, wherever I am. I mean, I like, I certainly like the thrill of it, but there are also opportunities to do like long form I mean I I like telling stories and I like hearing stories so
1: do you ever feel like it's limiting to be like so locked within this tech universe like one of the, I just started another podcast that's oh, yeah. about <laughs> cryptocurrencies, and I'm kind of like, well, for starters, I'm like, what if if this really crashes to zero? They're gonna like take the podcast <laughs> down with it.
2: Oh no, then you'll have so much to follow. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think it. I think that. Yeah, I think that probably the stories are actually better on the way down than, than the way up. But it, you know, it does give me a certain pause to mm-hmm. focus on something so narrow that I feel like could almost go extinct. Um, you've given pretty much the bulk of your career to this kind of Silicon Valley reporting, Uh, does that ever give you pause?
2: It does. But I feel like the boundaries of tech reporting are so limited still in a way like that. I think that there's room to do maybe the stories that I'm curious about that are more focused on how women think about their lives and, um, you know, how their day to days are changing that have technology woven into the background. Um, And I think there are so many stories that other people would care about that just don't get covered.
1: Do you, like you describe what the cult thing, sort of putting yourself in the shoes of someone who's doing it. When you try to do that in something that's less obviously experiential, like uh, Facebook's advertising Mm -hmm. realm, like do you think about like, well, what would it be like if I ran this company? Or how, how do you try to understand the people who are making these like decisions that really like change the world?
2: I do try to think about the pressure that they're under. And I, I think actually one thing that's helped me, especially since moving here, is I do have a really deep respect for the work that they do and the influence that they have. I mean, I think it's very easy to dismiss things because they're focusing on problems that you know, are maybe problems of their own invention sometimes. But it is when you live through the rise of Facebook and the rise of Twitter, I think people kind of sometimes forget how radically they've changed our lives and you just can't discount the ability, the technical ability, or just the marketing, you know, that they've been able to use to become so influential. So I do try to think about that. Like, what are they genuinely trying to do here? What's, what was the difficult decision that they had to make that when they read the dumb story, they're just like, "Ugh, you don't get it. I'm plagued by thoughts of you didn't really get it. And I think with business where, you know, most business reporters and tech reporters weren't trained in it, they didn't own their own or work in one, um, they might be lacking that knowledge. So I do really try to keep that in mind.
1: It seems like there isn't a lot of movement between the fields of covering technology and like being in it. Like I think about like someone like Michael Lewis, who was a Wall Street trader and then started covering Wall Street. And you see flow going the other direction, which is like. A certain number of people who were once reporting on technology (laughs) are now like the heads of publicity for technology companies. But I can't think of a single person who (laughs) had a startup or was like an executive at Facebook and then quit and became a reporter. It's almost like that knowledge or even like wrote a book, you know, revealing the secrets of or anything like it's like we're speaking a different language or something.
2: I think we'll probably see that actually more and more. Part of what's been so interesting about the backlash, and I, you know, perhaps was unpredictable, is that it's coming from within their own ranks and their own employees. And I know a number of engineers who can do everything they can do and everything I can do. You know, they're just incredible writers. And uh, you know, maybe once they make enough bank, <laughs> they'll be taking me out of my job. And you know, they deserve it. They're they're really good at what they do.
1: What do you, um, your parents who wanted you to go to grad school at all costs think about what you're doing?
2: They are now proud of me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, what year did they become proud of you?
2: <laughs> um, unclear. They're very supportive. You know, they're both uh, in science and, and medicine, and they're great writers, too. So I, I sometimes think, like, many people have a, a novel in them or at least an incredible voice from which to tell stories. But yeah, I don't... As it turns out, I didn't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer or anything. They never forced me to do that. I think they just wanted to make sure I was financially independent, that their support... That I did better than they did and, you know, that they didn't have all of these hardships coming here with like $40 and no connections and, you know, a sense of otherness that it didn't go to waste.
1: Do you think that that... um sort of immigrant story and the children of immigrant story overlaps with the technology story? I mean, there's probably no uh, immigrant group that is more associated with the technology uh, industry than like first generation Indian immigrants. Um, Has that like influenced your interest at all?
2: No. um, (laughs) I think, uh, I don't know. My parents are from different parts of India and usually like Indians tend to um like my dad is from Kashmir and he's Hindu and my mom's from Kerala and she's Catholic and uh, she actually grew up in Malaysia. So I don't have that like I wasn't quite in that It's all
1: very complicated. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah.
2: Like I've never met anyone with that exact combo. If you're out there please talk to me. <laughs> um, but uh but yes, I mean I think I mean I Incredibly proud and grateful that I could have had that experience and see the world through their eyes, and I think it certainly helps you. I mean, even Google actually. Um, Sergey Brin's parents are Russian, and um, I've heard from Kara Swisher many times that his mom was like disappointed that he didn't get an <laughs> engineering degree. So uh, you probably do understand the drive, maybe that got them into it, but I think there's a very different drive that keeps people in it here. It's very strange, like. You lose your place at the top of the hierarchy so quickly, and that's why you see people who have so much money, not just like cashing out and leaving. You know, in order to stay relevant and stay be someone that's thought of as having their best breakthroughs ahead of them. You just have to, people are just clawing to the top. I think you can see automatically the people, the investors who are like dying to get into your round when they no longer want to pick up the phone and and um, people are acutely aware of those kind of things.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how what we think of as greed may be like a, a form of wild ego that like what people may really be seeking is like, to be recognized that's like a that's like a harder thing to wrap your head around than like oh you know, these Wall Street assholes, they like stole the bank?
2: Well, I think I would say it's more insecurity than ego and like a universally relatable insecurity, yes. um, but an anxiety that maybe, I mean, you know, maybe they protest so much that the media is reading them wrong right. because they have a nagging feeling that maybe I didn't get here because I'm exceptional. You know, maybe I there was, you know, some luck involved and eager to prove themselves. And um, there's a whole mix of emotions, I think, that keeps you that keeps you striving.
1: What what excites you going forward? Like, What are the new stories, the new tentacles that um, you're looking forward to covering?
2: I I feel like there's so much to cover. I'm honestly overwhelmed. Um, I mean, this isn't my beat, but I feel like the tech reporters in China are... Coming out with some incredibly fascinating stories And in Asia. I mean, everything that we are going through, you know, that we went through with the Russian election. It's just happening. I mean, the Russian election. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it's um, it's happening with so much less oversight in yeah. other countries. Same thing with like kids getting targeted by technology. Everything is happening at the same time, and so. Uh, I guess I'm interested both as a writer and a reader.
1: How do you pick, like, is the next story you do, you go to your editors and pitch it? Do they tell you, like, who's driving the ship?
2: Both, I would say probably more me coming to them. And then, you know, they give me feedback on what they think a good angle is. Right now, I feel like I really haven't been doing that many essay type think pieces. I think that's probably also how you combat the perception that the media doesn't really understand is just I just feel like there's so much to learn right now and I'm excited to be in reporting mode even if maybe my stories aren't as scintillating but I feel like I'm learning so much
1: you described wanting to get it right and not wanting to have someone say like oh she fucked that one up like that was wrong and these things are increasingly complicated how do you stay educated like how do you keep pace with these things that are really getting like more and more phd level to understand
2: yeah i mean i i just struggle i would say but i I think it's just similar to what we're you know if you are extremely online and on twitter all the time it's it's totally the same thing i mean that's why those twitter threads from someone inside you know about deep state are so appealing because you're like okay it can reorder the world and i understand this thing you know things are just coming in like waves to you i think about that you know um abby and alana broad city that scene where they're like it's like a montage of watching the internet and they like are crying and laughing and like you know hunched over and then it's like 10 hours later that happens on a small scale to me like you know five times a day only because i'm trying to be less on it otherwise it would happen like 90 times a day so it's not like getting something really wrong it's more just like not getting it right i guess that just motivates me and maybe (laughs) maybe holds me back because i'm too obsessed with it like you're never going to get the story yeah you're never going to be able to tell what really, really, really happened. Yeah. Um, so maybe I should accept that.
1: Do you have people you trust who are able to sort of say, hey, like, you got it this time, or like, you kind of need to like workshop that idea? Like,
2: well, I try to, like, as, especially from my Valley Wag days, I'm just like, look, if you think I got it wrong, just tell me. Yeah. You know, like, I'll take, I welcome negative feedback. And so people do tell me. Um, you know, sometimes they're that's timid good, about that's it.
1: That's a good Twitter profile online. <laughs> I welcome negative feedback. Well, yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, I mean, it doesn't feel great, but I think that's how you learn. And then, you know, you realize something that you missed and you think, "Okay, I'm going to get it right the next time. Or I'm going to add that extra nuance that was missing before when news. I mean, news is done iteratively, so you can only kind of nobody gets the definitive take anymore. Yeah, I think so. I should give up that dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Well, thank you so much for doing this interview.
2: Thanks for having me. This was great. This was so fun.
1: And that was the long form podcast. Thanks very much to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Natasha TQ and Wired for hosting us over there. I even I used their microphones, which was a, a, a first and a thrill for me. I walked into the uh, room for this interview, and there was two microphones, uh, same microphones we have here in the uh, long-form cave, Uh, so that was amazing. Uh, This episode was edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Angela Velez. Thank you very much to our sponsors, MailChimp and Credible.com. In case you missed it on the first round around, Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using the Credible.com platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you are overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. In fact, the average user who refi's through credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. All you got to do is go to credible.com/longform, put in a few questions and right away you will get real rates from real lenders and checking those rates does not affect your credit score, so you've got nothing to lose. Plus, as a listener of the show, you can get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through credible.com/longform again. Credible.com slash crediblecom We'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it.